Welcome to episode 17 of the Rick Podcast. In this episode, Chris, Ilias, and Jamie continue to look at the Hinton Drug Lab operations and dive into how drugs were tested by the chemists in the lab. The guys also discuss the incident that started the drug lab scandal dubbed the June Breach. All that, and Jamie makes a Tommy Wiseau joke that went over about as well as the failed Capitol riot. Enjoy. Hi, we are back looking at the Hinton Drug Lab operations and what the newly released uh, Inspector General files have told us about what was actually happening there. Uh, among the other things that we received, as I had mentioned in previous episodes, was over 4,000 pages of transcripts of interviews with chemists uh, who were telling us uh, about many, many things that defense attorneys could have used in motions for new trials or motions uh, in cases that were presently active uh, when the scandal broke. Right. And um, and as kind of a hallmark to all of these uh, cases, this stuff was released, you know, years later after decisions have been made and people have stayed in jail, served out their whole sentence um, the, these materials come from way back in 2013 when the OIG was investigating this. And these are all interviews. This is all derived from interviews from every chemist that worked in that lab while Annie Dukin was there, even though the OIG insisted that the um, scope of the investigation was not solely Annie Dukin's conduct and behavior. It was the whole lab. Yet, as you'll see today, there was a lot of stuff going on. And as you saw from the last episode, there was a lot of stuff going on um, that was standard practice in, a, in the lab that had nothing to do with Annie Dukin. And so, the last thing I'd add is they fought tooth and nail to stop the defense bar from getting these transcripts. We tried to get them at first in the Cotto litigation before Judge Carey, and it took us until late last year in 2020 um, to get these materials. All right. Uh, Ilias, anything you'd like to add? No, I just, I'm I'm always reminded of Mark Twain's um, statement that, you know, a lie gets around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. And I think, um, unfortunately, um, the the, the person who knows that uh, best of all is is the government. Um, And so so suppressing stuff or keeping it locked away itself is is a daily victory. Right. Uh, for them and, a, and a, 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 a catastrophic loss for the people whose rights are being affected. So I think people need to keep that in mind when, when they hear things like delay or newly discovered evidence. That's always uh, a sign that something bad has happened, regardless of what's in those documents. Right. And a lot of things like from anything that happens that the government does an investigation on, we are f- solely reliant on, you know, the the reports that they issue and, um, you know, the summation that they give, the press conferences that they give. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, there's a million other things that happen in these cases that we are not privy to because some decision maker said that it's irrelevant. And until all of the materials are released that the government collects and you're, and you're, respo- or you're dependent on the government to release all those materials, so the, I guess the bottom line is we, when anything like this or any kind of scandal happens, you will never know the real full truth ever. That, that's because you can't because I think the government has has shown with this case and with 
a myriad of other cases that time and again, that they will withhold evidence to limit uh, culpability, I guess is the best way to put it. But so here's the GCMS operations in QC. This is uh, going from, I'm just going to, from section to section here in the, um, in, uh, from the materials that Chris had mentioned. So it was never okay for primary chemists to check samples into the GCMS. A primary chemist could be the setup operator for the GCMS. Uh, when Kate Corbett first started, one could bring racks of vials to the GCMS. Someone checked numbers and would initial and date on some form and take the vials. So there was a check-in, check-out system. All right. Around 2009, Julianne Nasif required that a primary chemist stay and be present for all of this number checking review. There had to be another chemist to sign in vials. If a primary chemist was trained in GCMS, then, then after another chemist signed the vials, the primary chemist could load them on the instrument and possibly type in the sequence and be noted as the operator but there had to be another chemist that interpreted the instrumental reports. Sometimes there were two operators. This is what makes Annie Duke and forging initials all the time so significant. Sometimes there were two operators. This, this, could, uh, this could occur if someone added samples to the end of another chemist run, either as part of a training situation or where there were unused spots on the GCMS rack. Um, as a general rule, the operator checked in the samples, filled out the batch sheet, put samples on the GCMS, and typed in the sequence. Primary chemists were not supposed to receive their own samples. Someone else was to check them in, and although... Um, Although, so, although one of the chemists believed this policy was sometimes violated. <laughs> and that's Della Saunders believed that sometimes this policy was violated. So it's a policy that one of the, that is known to be violated. So what is the point of the policy? So let me just comment really quickly. So you're sort of reading snippets that um, are explaining testimony from various witnesses. So we have chemist Nicole Medina, uh, Kate Corbett, uh, Della Saunders, and throughout the rest of the episode, we'll go through all sorts of other chemists. But the, one of the issues I see immediately is no one is on the same page, and that's because they don't have written protocols. Yeah. So one no of the important, so it, some of this stuff, you know, it's not a straight up violation of SWIG drug. It's just the issue is no one knows what you're supposed to do, and that's a problem in a government lab. Um, and it seems like uh, things would evolve on an ad hoc basis after errors occurred. And uh, last thing I'd say is having worked on dozens of Farrah Kinton cases, uh, the first thing you said, it was never okay for primary chemists to check samples into the GCMS. Well, I know from the lab packets that she routinely did that, which can cause all sorts of re reporting errors. The idea is that you want someone to be checking over your work to make sure the right vial uh, is associated with the right printout of a GCMS test result. Right, and what's also concerning is that it's one thing to not know what you're doing, um, and but to think you're doing the right thing. Um, it's another thing to not know what you're doing and know that you're probably not doing the right thing. And I think the clue to that, and, and you mentioned Kate Corbett, um, I believe she was the other chemist involved in the uh, Jones uh, case 
uh, which had two trials. There was a criminal trial and then a subsequent civil trial. In the original criminal trial, Ms. Corbett testified, I believe, uh, this is my recollection, that uh, she was, uh, as the secondary chemist, was involved in the entire second phase of the testing, meaning you know, the loading of the vials into, uh, uh, into the trays and, 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 and running the machine. Um, in the subsequent civil case, when it had been revealed that that's not how it worked, she actually said, yeah, that's not what I did. Uh, and I think she now had, had probably told, by, in the intervening time period, probably told the OIG that that's not how it worked. Well, the problem is, why did she, in the criminal trial, when someone's freedom is at stake, why did she lie? There's no good answer for that. If she thought she was doing the right thing, if she said, well, we don't, we have a, a napkin taped to the wall that tells us what we can do, why not testify to what that napkin says? Right. Um, but there wasn't a napkin. And the reason there wasn't a napkin is because they knew that it was probably wrong what they were doing and they didn't care. Well, what did they care about though then, right? That, that leads to that question. Why would they lie? Why would they go through all this effort and um, I, reading from the okay. emails like we did in the Annie Duke and Motive episode, you see that these chemists um, thought they were working for prosecutors and the prosecutors made them think that by what they were saying, the demands they put on these chemists, um, you know, just in, in the information that the prosecutors would give to each chemist about the nature of the, the crimes against, you know, the people whose evidence they were testing. They knew totally, all about what all these people were doing and were being accused of. Yeah, totally unrelated, you know, non-drug crimes. Right. So right. routinely tell them what was happening in these cases. Yep. Right. And there's, there's definitely evidence, sociological evidence, that when you bias somebody, um, especially through ne- negative thoughts, like this person might be a rapist or this person might beat his girlfriend or whatever, that you're, they're gonna, their uh, actions are going to reflect that bias. And, and so uh, you, the scientific method actually asks you to do the opposite. It asks you to put a blindfold on, so to speak, and pretend you don't know anything about this person. This person could be your uncle, your, your neighbor, uh, or somebody accused of the, the, the most heinous crimes. You shouldn't treat any of those people differently. You should just simply do the test that you're being asked to do. And we now know that that's not what was going on. Right, and that is... To me, that is everything in this case. All of the chemists knew. And um, if and I've used this example before, but I'll just repeat it now. If you're a chemist and a prosecutor tells you, hey, where is that case? I need it. There's a very bad person being put on trial that needs to be taken off the streets. Where is that discovery packet? Where are his drugs? Like I, that's a huge part of the case in keeping this guy off the streets and keeping us safe. And even their own, the chemist's own um, union wrote in articles, we'll go over this when we have Luke Ryan in our, uh, our season ending episode. That's a teaser. Um, But they, uh, um, there's articles in the paper that quoted the head of the uh, Moses union for chemists in Massachusetts. That's what they call themselves, Moses. And um, he said that these chemists play it when they're thinking of closing the Amherst lab. Uh, the guy goes on, gives an interview and said, these chemists are required for keeping our streets safe and keeping bad people off the streets. That was the motive. 
So at the start of a run, an auto-tune is performed. A blank is run, a standard is run, and then a QC standard mix is run. The ratio of retention times in the QC mix cannot differ by more than 1.5% from what it was when the column was first installed. Sometimes chemists ran as many as 185 sample injections in a single run. Peter Pirro did uh, did not want runs to go over 48 hours as there was uh, a risk of running out of methanol for the rinse of blank vials. So did that ever happen? <laughs> well, I mean, like they, they interviewed a, a whole bunch of different chemists about what the cutoff was, and they all gave different answers. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, the discrete issue that they're looking at when you run the GCMS machines for an extended period of time, there's, uh, I don't know if this is the technical, technical word, but there's a basin, so to speak, of solvent that's used in order to uh, make sure the instrument is uh, working properly and is not um, contaminating new vials. And so the concern was that if you run it too long, a couple of the machines uh, that were operating this way um, would just, they would just contaminate the rest of the vials. And so like having, you know, half a dozen different chemists from the lab all differing on what the cutoff was is a major problem. And again, it gets back to not having written protocols and procedures. And this is for people who might be trying to visualize this um, because it doesn't sound that bad, but this is, I call this the restaurant uh, rag problem. Um, We've all been to that restaurant that has a rag in the kitchen and the, the, the cook uh, wipes down surfaces with this rag, which seems like a great idea. Uh, but then if you keep watching, that rag keeps being used over and over and over again throughout the entire course of the day without being changed. And you realize that at some point, it's just rubbing raw meat juice all around the surfaces instead of absorbing them because the rag can only do so much. And so this is the problem when you, when you uh, 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 don't ensure that your blanks are serving their purpose. You are contaminating future results with uh, what might be an illegal substance. So something that wasn't necessarily heroin might now test positive for heroin. You just don't know. And that's the problem. So I think this is more than a a being fastidious. This is actually trying to ensure accuracy. Right. Uh, So two GCMSs could not run more than 100 injections because the wash files were such that they would run out of solvent. Two others uh, could because the vials were larger. And I, I had just said sometimes chemists run as many as 185 sample injections in a single run, according to Kate Corbett. All, all confirmatory chemists were expected to do column changes, cut columns, clean sources, and any other routine maintenance required of the GCMS. Well, and again, but there's routine maintenance that's captured in a procedure. And then when things go out of whack, an investigation is captured in a procedure. All of this stuff is proceduralized to ensure that you're doing things the right way and there's a standard of practice that's accepted for um, doing legitimate scientific processing. And they didn't even have the standard. And, and, the other- and can I just put a footnote? Because I think, you know, I want people to sort of connect all these dots, right? So previous episodes, we've talked about the fact that they were uh, uh, basically contriving um, secondary standards out of uh, previously seized stocks that were being used uh, and 
uh, and the testimony, I believe, that Mr. Hanchett said as well, you'll be able to see when it breaks down by looking at the results. Well, if you're not servicing your machines properly, what are you what are you looking at to you to 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 make sure that 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 you're on top of that issue? If your results are fuzzy, then your your sense of when things are uh, amiss is 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 uh, uh, imp impeded with. So I think that there's people have to understand that this is like at this point now a three ring circus um, where everything is is wrong. Uh, every part of the testing process, your samples are not bona fide. I mean, your your the tests that you're comparing against the, those standards are are not bona fide. Um, you're not using your machines properly. You're not following pre-specified protocols, um, and you you're able to sort of put your thumb on the scale and get the result you want. And there's there was even one more concerning problem uh, when it involves uh, Sonia Farrick, and this came up in the Amherst Lab litigation. You know, she was responsible for doing this maintenance on the machines over at Amherst. It's sort of unclear to what degree uh, she was responsible for that at the Hinton lab. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the other chemist there, or Hanchett at least, said she was never really interested in all that stuff. But on her resume, it said that that was one of her job duties. So, uh, you know... The notion that a, a person who is high on LSD is responsible for doing this is concerning and would have been helpful to defendants. And, you know, the argument goes, if there's enough admissions from Farrick that she was using during this period of time and she was in charge of maintenance of the machines as well, or at least uh, doing tunes for her own tests, that's an issue. Right. And... Um all right, so I'm just going to continue on. It's this is about we're about to get multi-run uh, GCMS reasons, uh, Ilias. So get okay. you excited. Uh, a, a log exists uh, with auto-tune and QC mixed reports, so they were logging it at least. There was a sheet with criteria to be checked off when evaluating an auto-tune, so there was a standard for that. Um, the laboratory kept hard copies of QCMS runs. So confirmatory chemists tried to keep samples um, to contain the same uh, drug together. Okay. Tried to keep samples throughout the, the testing process to keep the same drugs together. That was known as BAT. Uh, preliminary chemists used return vials, those RTC. Uh, in preparation for submission to GCMS. Do you, do you guys know what RTC means? Oh, return to chemist. Yeah. Return to chemist. Uh, often confirmatory chemists manually integrated below threshold chromatography peaks from the GCMS. Uh, Lisa Glazer could manually integrate peaks. All confirmatory chemists could manually integrate chromatography peaks. What is, I mean, I don't even, I, what does that even mean? I don't have an issue with that. So um, when you're looking at the little, uh, if you guys seen these, the GCMS readouts, yep. they have spikes of the different ions that the machine is detecting. And there is a manner in which um, you use math to put all that together and then say, um, this appears to be cocaine. And actually the preferred method is not to just simply rely on the computer and do it yourself. So um, I don't have a problem with that part. So you're meaning they're, they're using math to compute whether that peak is um, sufficient 
Yeah, I, I've only read about this uh, once or twice, but I believe you're supposed to compute the area underneath the peak. Uh, the curve, yeah. Use that in order to determine the chemical um, constituency of, of the um, molecules that you're looking at. Right. Like um, but nevertheless, there's a concern. The whole return to chemist thing is concerning because um, notwithstanding some contradictory testimony, uh, those uh, returns were never disclosed to criminal defendants. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's an issue where the machine isn't picking up cocaine to the threshold that they need in order to introduce it into court. And then, uh, you know, the GCMS chemist is trying to do the math. It doesn't come out right. So then they send it back to the primary in order to do a retest instead of just calling it negative. And the batching that we've previously mentioned is, uh, is also concerning because if you have a sample that you think is cocaine and you just throw it in with other cocaine samples, um, the risk of contamination or other things that might actually suggest this is cocaine um, increase. Whereas if you actually did it the right way, where it's sort of random, then you know, you would, it would be more evident that you're, uh, you've contaminated something because you might see LSD in, in a cocaine sample or something like that. But the batching itself is, is what I think, when people say dry labbing, I really think what they mean was batching. Well, as far as submitting it to the GCMS machine, it's sort of a double-edged sword because you know, if you have someone telling you this is all cocaine, there's going to be bias introduced. And the second chemist looking at it is going to be assuming that there's cocaine there and thinking there's a problem with the test if there's not something there. However, from like an efficiency and budget perspective, it does make sense uh, because standards are costly, although we discussed before, they're not crazy costly um, to use uh, the standards. For, it, it, it's inefficient and does not help the budget if you're running every single standard for every GCMS run. So there is a legitimate reason for doing this, although it does introduce bias. Right. All right. So here are the reasons for that a chemist would run multiple GCMS runs for the same sample. A weak response, bad injection as a as from a bad needle, an unknown was run and then would have to be run again with a standard. <laughs> Weren't these all supposed to be unknowns? Weird knowns, weird knowns or weird unknowns, such as submissions from clandestine laboratories. All might require re rerunning, according to Nicole Medina. Reasons for multiple GCMS runs include carryover as seen in blanks. A confirmatory finding was not what primary chemists thought the sample contained. Counterfeit substances, two drugs found in a GCMS report, but only one reported by the pre uh, preliminary chemist. Unknowns were, were run multiple times. A more than 1.5 difference between the standard and case sample. Uh, chromatography re retention times. Oh, okay, so I'm sorry, I, I gave that an inappropriate pause. A more than 1.5 difference between the standard and case sample chromat chromatographic retention times. Not enough ion fragments in the mass spectra report. Transcription errors or putting vials in the wrong rack. That's all according to Kate Corbett. Reasons for multiple runs include the fact that if cocaine is found in the GCMS report, but there were no crystals for it, it would be sent back for 
further microcrystalline tests, which, if positive, meant that the GCMS had to be rerun so that it would be dated later than the preliminary tests. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a huge thing in Massachusetts, as we've discussed before under the statute. Um, it has to have a certain type of isomer that's found as a result of the microcrystalline tests, or it's not illegal. Right. And and they say right after, guys, this would be easier to explain in court. <laughs> right? Dude, they're literally well, there's, lying. There's a, there, and I don't want to cut in, uh, Jamie, if you haven't finished the list yet, but um, each one of those things is terribly concerning. Uh, carryover from a previous sample is a fancy way of saying contamination. Yes, um, your drug has been compromised. Result, getting a different result than the preliminary chemist means that the preliminary chemist dry lab. Um, the problem of a counterfeit is that the person might be innocent of the crime, uh, as in the case of my client. Um, finding two substances uh, um, when the preliminary only found one, um, uh, you know, Maybe that's the least consequential, but that's uh, means you don't know what you're what you're dealing with, um, and you you needed to take your time. This is the problem with batching. Batching is rushing when you should be taking time, uh, and then the one the, the 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 difference is greater than is is supposed to be. Well, I think that could be reflective of the fact that you're using um, um, uh, uh, improper uh, standards. That could that could explain if you have a bigger difference than you expect. Uh, I think that suggests that the, the standard could be the problem. So, I, you know, I think there's uh, each one of those categories is is a major concern and something we've touched on before um, uh, that shouldn't shouldn't be going on. And it seems like it was. I do want to, like I said, I always want to be absolutely fair. So, one of those things when there is a different um, uh, result reported that the GCMS chemist finds as far as the primary, going through all the transcripts. Um, most all the chemists found certain instances to be legitimate. So they apparently in the opioid or opiate family, certain things may uh, come up with a similar color result when you do the um, chemical reagent test and they assume it's heroin and then it gets sent off. It turns out to be um, something slightly different, but still a controlled substance. Um, so then they send it back you know, to confirm that that's what it looks like. So, but that's different from when you send something to the machine and you're calling it heroin, it comes out cocaine or nothing or cash. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, right. No, that's, that's true. Um, and, and, but of course this is the word disclosure, uh, still enters the conversation. If you send it back, right. it's gotta be disclosed. Yeah. Um, and I think there's one thing that I don't hear a lot of discussion of, but there were different methods that you could use uh, apply to the GCMS, and and there's pros and cons of those different methods. And so one of them, so when you hear unknowns or weird unknowns, the problem is the method that you might need to use for those is different than the method that you would use if you, for example, thought it was heroin. And so there's a there, there's got to be um, a very uh, a, a, a scripted process by which you handle each sample and the care that, that that entails. And when you're cutting corners, you're running the wrong method. And if you're running the wrong method, you're encountering the cons that you shouldn't otherwise be encountering, which could include false positives, false negatives, 
um, and, and and the need to retest. So I think that it, it should be understood that, that the returns are a symptom of a lab that was out of control. You can't just wing it, right? Right. No. And, and you can't just like, you, they're specifically doing a scientific process to explain their methods. Like they should be, rather than running that process, they should just tell what happened during the testing. Why do they care? Why do, like, it's just part of the testing. What they're trying to do is just give a nice package to the DAs so they can convict. Sometimes, so it goes on, Elias, I'm halfway through the list. Okay, so I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think I've I've heard enough concerning things already that I thought I'd just jump in with that. Yeah, please, no, please do. And whenever you hear something you want to comment on, just stop me because this is, I know we're not going to get through all this, but anyway, sometimes valproic acid would make its way into runs where this occurred, a second run was undertaken. Also, dirty liners, the breakdown of standards or a sort or a source were all reasons for multiple GCMS runs. How were those identified? What, how were they investigated? <laughs> None of that. And breakdown of a standard is exactly what we've been talking about, which right. is that you didn't buy this heroin from a lab. Uh, somebody cooked it up or um, pulled it out of the trash or whatever they're going to, whatever story they're going to stick with. Um, but but you're not. You can't even prove that that's real um, heroin yeah. to begin with. And if it's Otherwise, starting to break down, Dave. Right. So like if you had an expiration date, you wouldn't have to worry about this extra step in the process to see whether or not your chemists are are catching when it breaks down from heroin into something totally different. Right. If vials for the GCMS were too strongly concentrated, the retention time would shift and the run would fail the 1.5% rule um, stated above. The vial was the vial was then returned to chemist. With weak samples for the GCMS, Kate Corbett would either manually integrate peaks, um, also Dan Rinkowski noting the scan number on the control sheet, or go back to the concentrate, uh, go back to con- and concentrate the sample for uh, resubmission. <laughs> a reason to fail a GCMS run and hence a reason to rerun. So they're saying right there, a fail equals a rerun, not just, uh, okay, this one passed, this one failed, this one passed, this one failed. A fail would always be a uh, rerun because that was the expected result. So reason for a fail for a GCMS run was that a QC mix was such that the abundance of one or both uh, constituents was too low if the mix had a little breakdown, it might be deemed acceptable. When <laughs> what's what's a little? Uh, when to reject the mix was was at the discretion of the confirmatory chemist. Peter Pirro believed that when comparing a case sample and a standard mass spectra, um, that there should be a strong correspondence between both the clusters of ions and their abundance. He would be uncomfortable in finding the mass spectra of some residues positive if they lacked a certain mass spectra robustness. How is robustness quantified? <laughs> through, uh, through somewhat conservative, I cannot disagree with this position. Uh, though somewhat oh, conservative, okay. so that, that's the investigator's comments right there. I cannot disagree with this position, she says. 
it, it is possible that vials could be put into slots in the GCMS that did not correspond to the numbers written on the GCMS control sheets or typed into the sequence table. This would lead to reports not corresponding to intended samples. <laughs> These events could precipitate a rerun in the GCMS. Right. And in fact, that's what happened with the, um, uh, I, I call it the, the banks sample, uh, in which they were rerunning it uh, as a way of detecting any malfeasance by Annie Dukin. And even then, with presumably nothing else to distract you, they still misread their, um, their, their uh, uh, run table. Uh, and so that seems like that, uh, you should have built-in checks to prevent that because, of course, the mistake could go the other way, right? You could have a sample that was negative and someone misread the preceding line as your sample and says I, it comes back positive. I mean, so you, you sort of can't make that type of mistake. Right. And, um, okay, so I want to actually skip to the June breach, uh, their investigation into the June breach. We've never done the deep dive into the June breach in the kind of absurd farce that was the June breach. And um, yeah, that, that the June breach was what precip precipitated this whole case from unfolding, or at least into public view. And um, it happened in June of 2011. But before we get there, um, I, I just want to read a couple more things about, uh, you know, samples being rejected, but the June breach is where I want to go after this. And, and Jamie, before you start, I, I'm just getting a little um, static on someone's mic. I don't know oh, okay. um, if your connection is loose, but... Is that better? Yeah. All right. So samples would go out as inconclusive if one or two chemists was not comfortable with the results. Conformatory and preliminary results rarely differed. It would happen sometimes with RXs. Uh, it was unusual for conformatory and primary fi findings to differ. When they did, Dan Rinkowski always spoke to the primary chemist about difference, the differences. Chemists other than Dukin would speculate as to why there was a difference. Dukin sometimes had no reasons. It is not surprising to uh, Della Saunders that there might be a difference between the primary and secondary chemist findings. Sometimes samples were run unnecessarily. What does that mean? All right, so um, after the Dukin situation became known in the summer of 2011. Peter Pirro wanted to do all the auto-tunes himself. There were changes in policy in how samples were put onto the GCMS. Initially, um, a chemist could put other confirmatory chemist samples on or take them off without being present. Um, the change to policy that confirmatory chemists had to see their sample vials go on the GCMS, they had to witness it, uh, changed the policy where confirmatory chemists were responsible for putting the vials that way, um, uh, the vials that they were responsible for on, the, on and then removing them from the instrument. There was no piggybacking at the end of a run. So basically, they needed. They were trying to identify who was doing what in the lab, and Dan Rinkowski describes a similar change in policy over time. 
early on in the laboratory, primary chemists could check their own vials into the GCMS. Confirmatory chemists were expected to check and print out uh, printouts from the GCMS run and also checking that all vials were in the correct spot before removing them from the instrument. A chemist's comfort level was a critical factor in the decision to find a sample positive. It doesn't seem like science to me, right? Comfort level? Comfort level? That's why people are in jail because of a chemist's comfort level with the bullshit results that they were... Like, literally, these people's lives are in in their hands. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. That that was it. It just is... It does not seem like science. It's not. That's because it's not. Like, if, if my... If the... negative and positive test results is based on how, like, mm, you know, maybe, yeah, all right. Like, that's, isn't that what you're getting from this? Like, at the end of the day, why are they even running these experiments? If they, I mean, dry labbing is just a a step away from their actual processing. That's what I'm getting. I, I feel like, so after having read all the transcripts where there were no protocols about acceptance criteria, it was just what each individual chemist thought that they could get away with in court, which should not fly. <laughs> Think about that. That has nothing to do with Annie Dukin. All right. So the Annie Dukin June breach um, was a breach of protocol of the evidence office room uh, chain of custody protocol. So chain of custody means if a sample comes into the lab from the police department, they fill out a form saying, I dropped off this sample at this time, blah, 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 you know, and, and give their um, badge number and what police department they came from, right? Just to say, okay, this dr- these drugs came from this police department at this time. They drop them off at the lab, and then the lab has an internal process that's similar to that to send out the um, drugs from the evidence office to the chemist for testing, Right. And so there's a a standard process where chemists weren't allowed, supposedly, to request certain samples. They would just um, get what was given, essentially, but but chemists were allowed to do what they wanted from uh, Charles Salemi. He was just that kind of a boss, but it was more the general drugs, not drugs that were from certain police departments and from certain counties. Well, like, they shouldn't have been asking for certain sample numbers because that was you know, extremely odd. Right. Uh, why would they even I, know what the sample number was? You know, like, why would they, right. why would I they care? After Melendez Diaz, um, some of the chemists did request uh, samples from various counties just because it was easier if someone lived in Salem to go to a court out there and not have to go to Barnstable or something like that, which isn't crazy. Yeah. Um, That's just courteous. But, yeah. But, but, yeah, again, like the issue was Dukin multiple times was asking for sample number, you know, XYZ and was getting it. Right. And the June breach occurred because she was asked doing that and they told her no. And right. then she just went in the la- the office and was basically like, F you, I'm taking these samples. You guys aren't in charge. Like I am in charge. Taking evidence in from law enforcement at the Hinton lab involved reviewing the paperwork, issuing a laboratory number, weighing the evidence, affixing a sticker with a new laboratory number to the evidence, putting the evidence in the safe, and preparing a a control card to document all of that stuff. Evidence was then put in bins in order of date received. Some 
some was isolated by type, e.g. PCP in mushrooms, was as not everyone could analyze those. A more recent policy involved keeping all items from a case together. Requests to expedite analysis would cause the evidence uh, clerks to override the system by selecting and immediately assigning uh, such case such cases. There was no set policy for how many samples were assigned. Usually it was 50. 100 would be a lot, but this depended uh, on the type as marijuana could be done quickly, alias. Right. Darren Winkowski and Kate Corbett typically asked for 50 samples at a time. This was reduced to 25 as the laboratory transitioned to a one-chemist system. The policy for chemists to take evidence from the evidence control, uh, a policy that changed over time, involved towards the end filling out a card, requesting cases, getting a call, or being personally notified that they were getting uh, that they were ready. Going to a small room off the evidence area and checking for harmony between the numbers on the control card envelopes, logbook entries, printed list of cases received, and, initiali and, initials, and initialized, initialing excuse me, the logbook. A late change to the evidence disposition policy involved an evidence clerk being present while the chemists opened and went through each envelope of evidence before returning to begin analysis. Michael Lawler notes that with respect to the evidence respect to taking evidence, uh, the process on the part of the chemist and evidence clerk was routine. Chemists were handed the evidence, they reviewed the paperwork, signed the logbook, and left. After generating a control card, evidence clerks on taking in new evidence would immediately put the evidence in the safe. Regarding the evidence office, Dan Rankowski, um, who is MT? My Tran. Oh, yeah. that's right, Maitran. Yep. Michael Lawler and Della Fre Fresca, is that it? Daniela. Daniela Fresca, yeah. Fresca. Fresca. I always think Fresca. How about a Fresca? Uh, Describe the process of chemists removing and returning samples in much the same manner as the other chemists. Now, after the Melendez-Diaz decision, um, that was in 2009, uh, there was an effort by the evidence office to keep all items from a case with a single chemist to minimize the number of chemists going to court. After Melendez-Diaz, evidence clerks would try to give cases to chemists based on the, where the chemists live, thereby facilitating them in reporting to court to give testimony. After Melendez-Diaz, the, um, the first evidence into the safe was the last evidence out for analysis. However, there were sections in the safe for trafficking cases and specifically cases like bulk marijuana or MDMA. Pre-Melendez-Diaz, evidence was stored by type, i.e. e.g. pills, powders, etc. in the safe. Now, they did it by first in, first out. Why wouldn't you do it by like known expiry of the drugs? <laughs> You know, seems a little strange. DS rare, uh, Saunders rarely helped in the evidence office. We don't need to know that. Um, there's always an evidence officer present when cases were dispensed to chemists. Evidence clerks never left evidence out unattain unattended. 
which I except mean, except for when there's no evidence officer, yeah, this they're is always funny. there, except when they're not there. Yeah, but but um, it's funny. These are I, I after each one of these statements, I'll say who said it. So the first thing um, was Kate Corbett, and she said there was always an evidence officer present when cases were dispensed to chemists. Is that true or false, guys? I'm gonna, this is like a game show. I'm going to say false. But. Yeah. <laughs> evidence clerks never left evidence out unattended, according to Dan Rankowski. Is that true or false? I guess to, is unattended mean I'm not there and, and, and other pe- random people have keys to a safe? Um, <laughs> well, unattended also. Remember the pictures of all those envelopes of drugs that yeah. were stuffed into drawers? Right, right, right. The evidence room was always locked when no one was present. Yeah, that doesn't, I think that's not true. Early on, chemists could leave evidence in the evidence room. This changed in 2005. We wouldn't know that. Gone over the 4,000 pages of transcripts, like every chemist is going to tell you something different, which is a problem. Yeah, There, there was, and so I guess the bigger point here, we don't have to read through all of these, but the bigger point is, is that Annie Dukin was fired for a breach of this protocol, which none of these people, there is no protocol. They're all saying different things about how, what they're supposed to be doing. And can I just go back to something that is not part of this topic, but is just is still amazing to me, which is that there's this. There's, they admit when privately that they were transitioning to a one chemist system, and this was a, a, a Julianne Nassif uh, a, a, a brainchild. Um, to deal with Melendez Diaz, which is instead of derailing two chemists, why not uh, to testify in a case? Why don't we just uh, derail one? Um, the problem with a one chemist system is that's not what you were telling people, and that's not what Swig Drug says. And so, my question is: Did they ever admit that they did a one chemist system in a, in a criminal case? And did they ever produce a drug cert that has the same chemist signing twice? So I don't know if that violates Swig Drug. The issue was having the work checked over uh, at least once by someone else. Right. It seems to me that that's what, uh, I mean, it seems like a one chemist system is either no one's checking or more likely what I think is maybe someone was checking and that person was pretending to be the secondary chemist, but you weren't telling people the true role of each chemist because one chemist system is never something that I believe they've ever admitted in a criminal case. And I'll, I'll stand corrected if I see some transcripts or certs or anything that shows that they were fully transparent about that transition. So, okay. Anyway, but I, that's not our topic, but still, that's a concern to me. Right. So for the evidence room, the people who had access to the evidence room were Della Saunders, uh, Janice Zanelli, uh, Dukin, and Betsy O'Brien. They all had access to the case database computer as well. In 2011 and 2012, after the Duke and incident, uh, Charles Salemi limited to 25 the number of cases that can be removed at one time from the evidence office. Prior to this, Salemi left it up to each chemist as to how many cases they would take. After the Duke and incident, um, the process of returning evidence became much more tedious, according to Lisa Glazer. So, AKA, you had to follow some rules. <laughs> um, and then, okay, so let me go down and find 
the June breach. It's a little further down in my lab culture. Lab, the lab culture one is a trip too. Clearly, like some women there thought they were being tr uh, treated in a, or that there was different rules for men and women. That's a, a big thing that I came out from yeah, that. Clear from the transcripts. Yep. Can and, you elaborate on that? Um, uh, just for there was like clicks, and there were I, I can go through um, you know that whole section. We can do that in another episode if you want. But that's a whole. There was drama. Um, Peter Prero and you know the the guys packed with the guys and the girls packed with the girls, or mm. the women packed with the women. The major contention was that it was felt that um, the women in the lab were doing way more work and churning out way more samples than any of the men, yep. which caused friction. Um, but that that's a recurring theme through many of the transcripts that I've read. Right. Um, people thought they were being treated unfairly because they were doing so much work compared to other people in the lab. And they thought there was a gender bias issue. Right. Right. But it, it came, it also came down to philosophy according to Lawler and those guys as to why they would do so few samples. I think Charles Salemi was hoping, didn't want to do a lot of samples because he was hoping for the appropriate funding level for the lab because he felt the lab was not funded appropriately. And if he didn't do a lot of samples, then, you know, it would wake in cases and everything came to a halt, it would wake people up. That that's the general sense that I got, and um, yeah, I, some of the people who were slow producers thought they were doing everything accurately, and that's why it was taking more time. But then you have comments from other people at DPH. I, I can't recall who exactly said this, but um, there was one anecdote where someone had said they were looking over chemist numbers, and they're like, "Gosh, does Dan Renzikowski even work here?" Like, right. <laughs> right. I well, forget Michael Waller did one, like he did one case one month. He just like, it, it, you look through and you're, and meanwhile, Dukin is doing 9,000, you know, or, or a thousand a month sometimes. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so that was, so the June breach. Team. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. The June breach. Uh, so evidence officer Shirley Sprague refused in June of 2011 to dispense 90 cases that Dukin specifically requested by case number. Dukin then went and took them on her own. In reviewing the 90 case incident in June 2011, uh, Betsy O'Brien noticed that noted that 30 cases seemed to be improperly removed in May of 2011. She believes that the evidence clerks might have seen this as a computer glitch. Uh, so, um, Betsy O'Brien was horrified at discovering on quote horrified at discovering on June 16th, 2011, that so many cases 90 had been removed improperly. She then initiated the chain of events with, um, Gloria Phelps, Charles Salemi and cool. Julianne Nasif that revealed the breach in protocols in the forgeries, uh, um, that Annie Dukin had committed around it. So she may have taken the samples outside of the established protocols because she felt she had the run of the place. See, that's, that's a quote. Yes, that, that is a quote. 
from uh, not sure if this is from Betsy O'Brien or Audrey Mark. It, uh, it is appalling to Betsy O'Brien that Annie Dukin would write someone else's initials. She felt like she had been hit by a truck, quote. To Betsy O'Brien, all evidence points to a nefarious act. Um, and she also assumes that Dukin used her key to gain access to the evidence safe to take the 90 samples. When the 90 samples came back to the evidence office, they were in a bin that the chemist did not have. It was only used in the evidence office. So wow. these things were color-coded, I think. Uh, it came out in some of the transcripts. Right. So they kept some in the evidence office or just in the safe, and then others were for the chemist's use. But uh, Charles Slemmy recounts that on Friday of the week of June 16th, 2011, uh, Betsy O'Brien showed him the logbook that lacked G Gloria Phelps' initials for the 90 samples. Betsy O'Brien then put the book back in the safe. And on Monday or Tuesday of the following week, the book displayed Gloria Phelps' initials. Phillips, Phillips. Phillips, excuse me. Gloria Phillips' initials. So that means that someone, like, they didn't have the initials at first, and then mysteriously the, on Friday, and then on Monday they come back, and there's initials in the book for the, the evidence that was taken out of sequence. At the cost of starting, stating the obvious, it suggests that Dukin not only improperly removed the 90 samples and forged Gloria Phillips' uh, initials, but also violated protocol in entering the safe to perform the latter. Uh, Charles Salemi believed on being made aware uh, with Betsy O'Brien and Julianne Nasif of the 90 sample incident that Dukin was having mental problems. Uh, Charles, so why is she not on, if she's having mental problems and he knows that she is having mental problems, why is she not on leave? Why, why was that, why was she not offered that? I think he said, or maybe one of the other chemists said that they assumed that she would just be placed on some type of administrative leave and get mental health treatment through HR and the Department of Public Health. And instead of doing that, she sort of got promoted in a sense and just got yeah. transferred to an area where she was uh, doing research and writing, even though that apparently never um, uh, ended up in actual written protocols for the lab. Right. And it's, it's, it's always fascinating to me that depending on which side uh, uh, you work for, if you do something wrong, um, immediately people will rush to suggesting maybe there's a, a, a problem of not of your own, um, beyond your own control. But yet people are arrested on the streets every day for uh, mishandling drugs. And, and nobody is rushing to their defense to say, oh, maybe they're cracking under the stress of something. Right. And um, Annie Dukin wrote, ASD slash KC on a bat or K KC KC being Kate Corbett on a bat sheet when Kate Corbett was not actually involved. Dan Rankowski, Nicole Medina uh, told Nicole Medina that Dukin forged Dan Rankowski's initials on a control sheet, and uh, Dukin had put Nicole Medina's initials on a tomb report. Peter Pirro was reviewing a transcription error that Dan Rakowski had apparently made on some GCMS paperwork. Upon further inspection, Rinkowski noted that his initials on the document had been forged. Rinkowski was very upset, uh, visibly and verbally expressing a sense of betrayal. I think of, uh, have you guys seen The Room? I think of Tommy Wiseau throwing the television out the window at the end of The Room, if you guys are familiar with that reference. 
Uh, sort of, but um, I'll I'll show it. Yeah, I'll I'll show it to you. It's fun that uh, Duke and forged his initials. She had bought him a baby monitor when his son was born. They were Facebook friends. You betray me. How could you betray me? <laughs> we were Facebook friends. But seriously, so so signing someone else's initials is essentially stealing their identity, falsely putting applying it to a work product that they did not do. So if anything that happens with that work product goes wrong, that person is responsible for that and has to answer for it. And um, it also just, it, it, it undermines the entire lab because then what is true if this person is in intentionally, maliciously falsifying information in a log and you find it, and uh, then what, you have to question everything else that that person does. It's not just like one person's initials. It's a whole bunch of people. Yeah, right. over a period of time. And, and so there's, there's some suggestion, Chris, you'd know better than I, but but you know what's interesting about the June breach, and 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 I think Jamie also t tells this story um, that I, I believe Renkowski said at some point that he had he had observed her uh, forging of his initials before that, uh, and I, I can't pin down that reference. But it's interesting that that they when they when the June breach is discovered, suddenly people are like, oh yeah, well we saw something kind of funky in May. But we didn't, you know, dwell on that um, very deeply. That must have been a computer glitch. I mean, how long was this stuff going on? And was the June breach simply, um, to use a different movie reference, sort of the MacGuffin that let everybody uh, throw Annie Dukin under the bus and pretend that everything, all problems were solved? Um, uh, you know, or was it genuinely the case that they had no clue uh, and that this suddenly opened their eyes uh, like saucers. Um, you know, I, I, it's hard to tell, but I think there's some admissions here and there that people had known about stuff about Duke. And I mean, she had been subjected to a special audit of her results previously. And yet none of this was documented. And even when they discovered June uh, uh, mishandling, suddenly people are like, oh yeah, I noticed this and I noticed that. Um, you know, how come uh, uh, people have been letting this stuff uh, persist. I mean, like, okay. So the problem that I have is, you know, to the OIG's credit, some of this stuff was discussed in the report, but we never got the underlying transcripts. And if we had, A, they would have really informed us more about the culture in the lab, but B, more importantly, they would have opened up these important questions that needed answering that weren't addressed in the OIG's report. Exactly. Right. And leading to that ridiculous conclusion, right? Yeah. And at the end of Dukin's tenure, Nicole Medina did not believe much of what Dukin said. Charles Salemi could not trust Dukin after the 90 sample incident of June 2011. Dukin wasn't fired until March of 2012, by the way. D uh, Renkowski did not trust Dukin after she was taken off casework which was after the June 2011 incident. And then after that incident as well, uh, Elizabeth O'Brien could not look Dukin in the eye. Uh, O'Brien had no trust in her. To O'Brien, it was black and white, stating how could she do it? <laughs> when, the, when the ASD, when the Dukin incident occurred, people were very demoralized. Wow. It, it, it's, it, it's hard to get a sense of like, 
it, it just seems like this was a crushing blow to these people, but like there had been stuff going on all along and they were either willfully blind to it or, um, I don't know. It's, it's very weird how the, the, these people talk about this. So Della Saunders thinks that after the 90 sample incident, Dukin should have been put on administrative leave. And it was a slap in the face to everyone at the drug lab uh, that she was still working, going to court, etc., knowing that she had lied about the 90 samples. Uh, Medina and Kate Corbett stated that they did not want Dukin in the laboratory after June 2011. Um, Lisa... Glazer thinks that after the 90 sample incident, uh, Dukin should have been dismissed immediately. No one wanted Dukin in the lab after the 90 sample incident, according to Peter Pirro. He was upset that she was allowed in. Pirro, um, that Dukin was allowed into the laboratory after June 2011 seems solely to be because uh, Julianne Nasif allowed her to be. After the 90 sample incident, uh, Betsy O'Brien did not want Dukin around, it went, and it was frustrating that Dukin still had access to the laboratory. When chemists realized that the 90 sample incident had larger ramifications, they pulled back from Dukin. Uh, and when Charles Salemi learned of the 90 uh, sample incident, he told Peter Pereiro that she was, quote, done. Primary... <laughs> what, I, what I want to say is, you know, the involvement of, of Julianne Nasif here is key. Um, you know, everyone else in the lab, you know, some people couldn't even look her in the eye, yet she was kept there. She was continuing to test uh, at least some of these samples, continuing to testify in court and was given other duties and, you know, still had physical access to the lab, even though there was sort of an unwritten, unclear rule that she wasn't supposed to be in there. Um, I think, you know, the motive, and this is touched upon in the OIG's report, is that NASIF was worried very much about um, losing federal funding because they had to report incidents like this. Um, but as I've been harping on, you know, over and over and over again, the OIG didn't tell the public that NASIF could have been federally charged for misrepresentations that she made um, in connection with this funding and failing to report Dukin and, uh, you know, there's a whole litany of things that she did, but anyway, we can move on. Right. Um, so, so this is just some random Dukin quotes. Dukin told Nicole Medina that she would never be, she being Nicole Medina would never be a confirmatory chemist. And she told Kate Corbett that if Della Saunders was given Charles Slemmy's position after he retired, she would quit. Given the impression that Julianne Nasif would listen to her regarding Charles Slemmy replacing, Charles Lemmy's replacement. Kate Corbett thinks that Dukin was threatened by Della Saunders. Ah, competitive. Dukin did, because they were both the top producers, right? Yeah, at that time, yes. Um, and Dukin did have an air about her. She referred to herself as a universal chemist, according to Nicole Medina. Uh, Dukin told Kate Corbett that she was indispensable. And Dukin seemed like a know-it-all, like an expert on everything. And Charles Slemmy did not believe that Dukin built herself up as someone special. So he didn't see it. But Dukin seemed to have 
a change after Melendez Diaz. She was very focused. She thrived on it and she did not act grand in front of Betsy O'Brien. Uh, Dukin spoke of specific projects she undertook for ADAs, according to Kate Corbett. That is very, 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 very interesting. Many ADAs called Annie Dukin for court purposes, whether it concerned her or not. It was unreal. Uh, excuse me, this was unusual, in, according to, um, what's the last name, DF? Who is that again? Daniela Frasca. Daniela Frasca. Uh, Dukin could, though she was not supposed to, look up cases by defendant's name on a computer. Um, Dukin definitely enjoyed knowing various ADAs. She took a lead after Melendez Diaz in helping them know what questions to ask. And there is a very telling um, email exchange between Dukin and George Papacristos, where he tells Dukin uh, that basically the Supreme Court is putting police officers' lives in danger by the Melendez-Diaz decision. And that they want, you know, scumbags on the streets. And Dukin's like, huh, I never saw it that way. She literally says that. And then he, it's just funny here as she's saying after Melendez Diaz, she's focused. She wanted to help the DAs because she, Papa Christos made her feel as though there was a war going on between the uh, people that Dukin's evidence she was testing for and uh, the ADA. They were trying to kill her friends, the ADAs and the police. So of course she's going to do this, um, and just just to connect a few dots uh, for today, um, we've previously discussed that apparently there were different comfort levels um, that chemists had based on what they're willing to say, and if prosecutors get wind of this, uh, then of course you're going to ask the one that's more comfortable helping your case be uh, involved. And so, Jamie, to your credit, you've been focused on this issue of prosecutorial um, um, uh, uh, favoritism uh, or some close relationship that seems uh, improper. Um, That's the consequence. The consequence is that you can essentially shop for a favorable opinion from somebody uh, that uh, that you believe is reliable for your your, uh, uh, viewpoint. Right. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a terrible concern, given, again, the liberties at stake. And people that she would literally go out to drinks with them. That's the thing. Like, they were her friends. And of course, she's going to do everything she can for her friends. Uh, and then, so, she, so, it's a, so Duke definitely enjoyed knowing various ADAs. She took a lead after Melendez Diaz and helping them know what questions to ask. And then she loved that aspect of the job, quote, according to Betsy O'Brien, who knew her best. Peter Prio does not believe that the ADAs were asking for anything improper. Hmm. Charles Salemi is not aware of any ADAs requesting of, of Dukin to analyze their cases. So there was, um, in the transcripts, there was a, a couple of innocent reasons why a DA would call. So like, if uh, a particular case involved multiple defendants and it got assigned a whole bunch of different sample numbers, right? And one chemist took out, you know, nine out of 10 and there was the last remaining one that had been untested. They might call, ask to see who worked on it and just let them know that that is also involved in the case if they're going to be testifying. It's efficient to 
you know, have that chemist do it as well. That's different from a chemist apparently calling you up, asking you to do 90 samples, you asking the evidence officer if you can have those specific samples, that evidence officer telling you no, and then you doing it anyway, right? Right. It's a big difference. Um, so when Lisa Glazer returned from maternity leave in, in 2011, uh, she saw Dukin's um, curriculum verta, which reflected her taking the D Department of Justice. Oh, actually, I, I skipped something. Hold on. Dukin had worked out something with Julianne Nasif that put Dukin in a position of reviewing monthly QA balance checks. <laughs> Dukin had made, was made to feel when she was removed from the drug lab in the summer of 2011 that she was being promoted, not disciplined, according to Dan Rakowski. Imagine, like, Imagine being these chemists and seeing someone totally screw everything up, like go, go out of sequence and, and make a big mistake and then get promoted for it. Um, it, it like you, you would feel a ton of resentment. Dukin, after being taken off casework by Julianne Nasif, was assigned to write SOPs, like, we, like uh, Chris had said before. And Della Sanders found this strange since she was not at the upper supervisory level, the level where SOPs were expected to be written. When Lisa Glazer returned from maternity leave, she saw Dukin's CV, which reflected her taking a D Department of Justice class. Dukin was very cold, not wanting to share information about the classes. Dukin lied about the origin of those classes, saying they were uh, from North Carolina when they were being offered free from West Virginia University. Dukin spoke of getting a grant to take Department of Justice online forensic classes. Uh, there was no grant. The courses were free. <laughs> it's weird. And then, so how did the June breach get escalated? Uh, neither, neither she nor Julianne Nasif contacted human. So neither uh, Betsy O'Brien or Julianne Nasif contacted human resources. Karen King is the HR liaison. She was never consulted. Uh, according to Linda, uh, Linda Hahn didn't believe that Dukin's conduct rose to the level of contacting HR. She felt at the time that Dukin was appropriately spoken with and that her temporary removal from testing was in itself a punishment, knowing how much she enjoyed testing. According to Linda Hahn, Annie Dukin was temporarily removed from testing with the intention of returning her, uh, returning her to these duties. She revisited this decision with Julianne Nasif, but, Julie, but Julianne Nasif did not believe that Dukin had gained any insight that she, what she had done was incorrect. Uh, Dukin's attitude was described as the end justifies the means. No big deal as long as she was getting the test done, etc. Linda Hahn stated that based on this, there was no reason uh, to believe that she was any more suitable to returning to testing. And the DPH wasn't notified about this incident until the following December, on December 1st, 2011 by Linda Hahn. Notification came through discussion that Linda Hahn was having with HR about, An about Annie Duke. And then here's one last thing. So uh, here's where Charles Salemi, here's an email um, from Betsy O'Brien, the evidence officer, to Charles Salemi in 2006. It's got three bullet. It's got four bullet points. Bullet point one: I need to run my uh, quant soon. Who else has any to run? Number two: When 
Chuck We Doodle. What, what is it? Who is that? When Chuck? Anyways, when someone came to visit last week, he mentioned he was looking for a summer job. I don't suppose we could accommodate him. Um, at any rate, he also mentioned that after his second semester this upcoming year, he would be looking for a permanent part-time position, dot, dot, dot. And then bullet three, when I signed for my samples today, I noticed you did not put them in the book. Was this an oversight or were you planning to do it later? Or was it, it just wasn't your usual MO, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> like, how is that different from what, like, what, why is that not a big deal? Do you guys right. get what I'm saying there? Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the flaw of the narrative that we've been fed is that the June breach changed everything when A, it didn't change everything, right? Annie Dukin was not fired. Um, there was minimal and belated disclosure. Um, and, uh, and she was, in fact, writing protocols that you were lying and saying you were following when they didn't exist. Um, but now you have a situation where you're sort of assuming, if you don't ask a lot of questions, that this is the first time that's happened, right? And, and so the first question I would ask is, well, how often did this happen? And then you'd find out probably, well, it actually happened all the time. Uh, we just, as a policy, never disclosed it or logged uh, uh, these incidents. So then it starts to make you wonder why the June breach became the, the thing that it did. Uh, and, and maybe we'll never know. Uh, I find it interesting that everybody felt like they couldn't look Annie Duke in the eyes and they were um, so disappointed. And yet they were uh, going to eventually, what, get handed proto SOPs that she had written? They couldn't trust her, but they were going to rely on her uh, work product. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, they said they couldn't look her in the eye. It, so anyway, the last thing I just want to say, I believe you mentioned this, but that email from Salemi to Elizabeth O'Brien was way back from 2006. Right. So it's not like it was a recent problem that was happening. With, right. You know, after Melendez Diaz, after they were, supposedly trying to keep better track of things. This had been an ongoing issue. Right. Uh, certainly wasn't the first time that something like this happened. I don't know about the magnitude of 90 samples, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, it, it had been an ongoing issue at the lab. And it was, it was such of such high critical importance that it was bullet number three in that after trying to get someone a job, they're like, oh, by the way, your initials weren't in the logbook after you checked out samples. Not certainly not a fireable offense, it seemed. All right, so uh, that's it for this episode of Rigged. As always, thank you, uh, guys. This was uh, this was great. Yeah. All right, see you next time. Yep. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. <clears throat> that was episode 17 of the Rig Podcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of our look at the Hinton Lab operations. As always, subscribe and write a review if you like what you hear.